interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Welcome to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast, interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking their secrets to success. Joining us today is Sal, CEO of HRN, a multi-family office investing in early stage VC and private equity. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your background and insights, Sal. Alex, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you. So if you can kick us off as this customer right here, 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Sure. Yeah. I am the uh, co-founder of HRN, which is a multifamily office that makes a lot of investments into earlier stage life science companies, but also other types of technology companies. And in light of the whole Silicon Valley bank thing, I'll explain that a little more later what that means. I started my career actually at Goldman Sachs in the late 90s. And at the age of 29, because I have a real estate background, what I did was I started raising money institutionally from, I had two institutional funds. One was a Park Avenue investment manager that seeded my first fund. And we bought a lot of distressed debt from Bear Stearns back in 2008. And then again, we did it with commercial out in Western United States in Las Vegas and Southern California. And then after that, I noticed that a lot of we were getting outbid on a lot of real estate things because rates started to come down and things were normalizing after the great financial crisis. So we started pivoting into the families that had seeded me going along. And some of them were life science companies. And they said, Sal, why don't you invest alongside us? Because I have a very good network in New York. I was able to do that very quickly. And with my two partners who are very well experienced running private equity and venture in life sciences and earlier stage healthcare companies, we were managed to have a tremendous track record so far that our families are very happy with. And you know, we have a sort of like a little bit of a, you know, a recipe that I'll talk to you about, which, you know, thankfully we've been able to sidestep this bullet known as SVB or Signature Bank and a lot of things that we're seeing today. And I'll get into that, but it comes down to a few principles that we've had. And it's mostly, you know, making sure that we're working with the best in class people we can when making these investments into these. I also am an author. I've written three books. My most recent one is Investing Legacy, How the 0.001% Invest. And that's usually, that's pretty much a, I would say, a primer for people who are looking to make private direct investments into statement class things such as real estate, commercial real estate, things that are private, things that are not public, things that are earlier stage that seem like they have a lot of risk in it and are not liquid. And we've had tremendous success with that book because it sort of opened up congeniality, if you will, with the families who come in and they're very comforted by understanding that they're part of a community. And one of the hallmarks of HRN is that we like to make sure that our families know that we interact with them. We interact with them a lot. Actually, over this past weekend, we were sending emails out talking about how we're not exposed to any of the problems with SVB, for example, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or whatever that is. And that's really sort of like the hallmark of running our family office today is that we don't look at things transactionally. We look at them very relationally. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So what's one of the mistakes that you see private equity firms, venture capital firms, or their portfolio companies making and what actions would you suggest to correct them? You know, it's interesting. I've seen this before where there's a lot of easy money out there and we've had 13 years of zero interest rate, the cost of capital. It's become a lot easier for people to look smarter than they actually were because the floating boat rises, you know, a floating, a rising tide floats all boats. But that's also made people feel as though that they're a little more, it's given people, I think, people who've never been through a de- down cycle before in their life, 
sort of some sort of confidence that this is going to be different and things will be different. I will tell you right now that going into this, going into any of these deals that we invest into, I want to make sure that, and the difference between us and other firms is that I think a lot of other firms treat their portfolio companies like succulents, like cactus. They just worry about a little water, you know, nothing else. We don't want to get to that. We want to make sure that we have full on court press marketing these companies to our investors, not just to our investors, but so, so the rest of the world knows exactly what they're doing. Because the last thing I want to do when I get to an investment bank and I have to call someone and say, hey, we have this great company that's looking to go public or be acquired and have them say who, right? I mean, and so it's, it's, and it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like, who, who did you invest into? And really what you want to do is you need to make sure that you're constantly on top of these companies, not hand-holding them, but assigning certain resources to them. And to us, that's through public relations and media, because the people who win today ultimately are media. And a great example of this was Peloton. Peloton was a great company. The stock has done a donut, but it was very well hyped before it went public. And then, you know, that a lot of that publicity had a lot to do with it before it came crashing down. Now, that's not to say our companies will do that or won't do that. They were in a much different consumer discretionary, you know, technology business that was a beneficiary of the pandemic. For us, it's life science companies that are on top of the cure, and we're constantly talking about the ex- the experiences that our CEOs have, especially now, because you need a qualified captain to help you shepherd the cargo across the sea, especially when things are getting bumpy. And only people who have been through many economic cycles and have seen many issues like what we're seeing here are the ones who are really going to ultimately win in the end. I think that there was a lot of speculation that came into this and there was so much money around that people were just putting money into deals because they were looking at it as a numbers game. Whereas we portfolio these things and we have to hold them. And if anything goes wrong, Alex, you know, it's a difficult conversation. Not only is it a meaningful part of my own net worth and my partner's net worth, it's a meaningful part of our investors' net worth. So we're very careful about who we invest into. And there are certain industries, which you and I have talked about before, that we are not going to go into. Okay, makes sense. So you told us there about utilizing media. Are we, you know, are we talking about realizing marketing companies and utilizing them into your portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. PR companies? What are you doing? Absolutely. For? The way we like to do it is that we have one person we work with who's a former investigative journalist. There's many other people out there, but she seems to do a very good job for our portfolio companies, uh-huh. bringing awareness to them. Because when you're raising money for these companies or yourself, you are a an agent of that company. You are guilty, you know, b- being associated with that company. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that our CEOs have a full court press, that they're constantly talking to people, the press, they're on TV, there's press releases, although that's kind of antiquated, and other forms, not necessarily social media, but more legitimate forms of media, because to them, that is going to give them the goodwill that they need and the reputational equity in order to build, and especially to raise more money, equity, and uncertain circumstances like we're seeing today. Okay. And I'm obviously, yeah, I'm a big advocate of marketing, one of the reasons I've been on the podcast, but... You know, I know there's going to be somebody rightfully saying, okay, but that's great. But, you know, fundamental businesses need to run on, on the marketing side. One of yeah. your stances as a business and it written on your website from the research that we did was that, you know, taking that kind of stance of investing with businesses, with strong founders, strong entrepreneurs, and that multiple exit, multiple exposure, yeah. which for everybody would love to invest in. How are you being able to originate those types of businesses that's, you can yeah. put the media so on? That's a very good question. I mean, it comes from the collective reputation that we have doing what we say we're going to do mm-hmm. throughout the past 20 years. My partners have a great track record of attracting this type of deal flow because of them being earlier venture capitalists for the state Texas, you know, state of Texas and New York and their life science venture portfolio. 
or my other partner who managed six billion, for example. And we have other things besides life sciences, but this is sort of the topic of the jour because we're looking at a post bank run right now on Silicon Valley Bank. And there are certain companies and certain profiles that life science companies have that are much more attractive than regular tech companies. And when you have the the networking of people, and that's really what it is, the New York network, the London network, to be able to get into these opportunities, that's where the real magic is. I think a lot of people today, they don't have a strong network. And so you saw a lot of people, especially in, you know, outside of the major financial areas like San Francisco, New York, and London, they were investing in a lot of companies, but they were companies that had first-time founders. That is something that we would never do. Um, we are not tuition for anyone. When I've recently moved to Miami, there's a huge Florida venture scene down here, which is very vibrant and exciting. However, there's still a lot of first, you know, there's, you still have that like Silicon Valley herd mentality, you know, where it's just, you know, the first time founders deal as though that, you know, whatever they do, they can come in and raise money. But things, the liquidity has gotten a lot tighter today. Capital's gotten a lot more expensive immediately. And it really comes down to the network that you have to be able to get into these things and how well you treat your network. A lot of people don't treat their network well. They treat it as an afterthought, sort of maybe like their health or like their diet or something. But if you're not interactive with your customers today in an environment that demands interactivity because of social media and everything that we've been sort of, you know, sort of forced to to acquiesce to, it's become much more difficult for people to raise capital or even sell their businesses. And again, the last thing I want to do is have you and a company and I call up an investment bank when it's ready to go public and they say, who, you know, like, who's this company? We've never heard of them. And that is where you know that you're going to have some problems. And, you know, the companies we invest into also have one other thing too, which is even more important. That is, they have very strong lead family investors, established family operating, uh, you know, established operating family offices who have invested in this stuff before, or their wealth was a direct correlation from selling maybe a life science company or a real estate company or something. For the people who are not involved in life sciences day to day, it was an interesting story how we got into this because I noticed that when I had to give back a lot of money because I was getting outbid on something, which is basically like a CVS or a, you know, what we call a necessity type of store in the States, I got outbid on that. And what I found out was that a lot of families, a lot of wealthy families all had a gateway drug to life sciences through philanthropy. And once we were able to show them that we're making direct investments into these companies, that they don't need these organizations or other layers of management or philanthropy on top of, it became a lot more enlightening. And that's how we were basically able to build the relationships even more by putting together the best of both networks, the deal sourcing and origination from like Rockefeller or, you know, Ed's boss at mine at Goldman Sachs to, you know, world-class families. And that's really where the magic is. Interesting. And following on from that, it looks, you know, you've had a pretty good result recently with NSDA PMA approval with the youngest team in history. Talk to us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, unfortunately, it's become the norm rather than the exception where there's a lot of cardiac arrests on the field right now, especially in America with young kids in high school, secondary school, even in the profession, even the professional football players are facing all sorts of problems. And before this even became the crisis that it is today, and I'm calling it a crisis because it seems to happen a lot, depending on where you read, we made an investment into this company that was working on a revolutionizing a 35-year-old device, which is the artificial defibrillator. If you're in a conference room, you see this big thing, or it's a big box that somebody carries around with them, and it looks like it's got the secret nuclear codes until today. Today is half the size of a Coke can, and you can power it with your iPhone, and you can use duality to make it either for a young child or an older adult. And it is something that every, I think, mother will have in her purse. I think every high school football field will have it. Every high school coach will have it. 
And it's something that's going to be ubiquitous. And the families that we invest for are excited by that because, yes, it was a pedigree team and they, you know, everything was working out very well. But it, it's more or less the impact and the bragging rights that comes with it, that they were the, you know, one of the founding families that invested in this company that has saved who knows how many thousands of kids on the football field over the next decade or so. And that's some of the successes that we've had. And that's something that we like to talk about because to us, that separates us from like the bad news that always comes out. A lot of other people, investment managers such as myself, they only, not like myself, but in the same capacity, they don't communicate with their investors often. And the more you communicate with your investors today, the better it's going to be all around. It takes effort, but once you're able to dial that in like anything else, um, it builds a tremendous amount of confidence and, and trust in what we're able to do. And that's why we've been able to go into certain things. Perfect. And you spoke about your book and interesting on the title, you know, Evan talks a lot about the 1%. Um, you've gone, taken that a lot further and gone, the concept of how the top 0.001% invest. So why that? And what is, what is this, you know, this 0.001%? I mean, the one thousandth of the 1% invest totally differently than the middle class, which is the 1%. Anyone with a job making over let's say $150,000 a year is in the 1%. That's just, you know, but they have their own financial problems because a lot of them have a lot of debt and, you know, they've, they're only probably like, they, they still are wage earners, W2 wage earners, what we call here. So they could be fired at any given moment. So they look at investing much differently. They look at investing as something where they need to capture a lot of wealth in a short period of time. Now, their investment mandate is get rich quick. They don't say it that way, but it's get rich quick. For the Top thousands of the 1% is more capital preservation. It's looking at various generations going out forward. For example, we have a very prominent family, a beer family, if you think about it. And I won't mention the name, but they won't look at anything unless it meets their 40-year impact statement or their impact plan. Uh, We have a lot of families too right now. I don't know if you've received the email, but we're starting to make the foray into professional sports. Professional sports is the ultimate flag of legitimacy. Where you are, they bestow knighthood on you, right? Like, you know, Elton John and Rod Stewart here, they let you buy a professional sports team. And so the legitimacy that goes with that and the increase in status is what these people are looking for. They're not looking to buy the next Gucci belt or the next fashion or anything. What they're looking to do is to extend their legacy to the point where that immortality is something that must be earned. And, you know, they're looking to make their stamp on on the world, whether you're Jeff Bezos going off into space or Elon Musk, for example, Richard Branson, any of these people who are pioneering new things. They're doing it because they're looking to leave their stamp of legitimacy to make the world a better place. And so far, it's worked out pretty well, especially with our life science portfolios. We do interview someone in state on Chapter 5 that talks about this. If you are a sports nerd and you want to know about this, Chapter 5, what are statement assets? And I interview a good friend who's one of the founding families for sports investing from Chicago. And he talks about how that came into being and where it's going today and what that looks like going forward. And you know, the ancillary revenue streams that come into it. But it's something that no mortal one percenter would ever get into. You have to have bigger dollars and, of course, much more influence to be able to get into this. Because buying a sports team or even getting involved into some of these companies' cap tables, people will do a background search on you. They don't want any problems. They don't want any loud mouse on Twitter or anything like that. Because when you do match with your investors, you want to make sure that you share the same culture. Interesting. Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grutter. The private FPC market is rapidly shifted to a data-driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grutter provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grutter so you can access the market first. 
request a demo www.grata.com now back to the podcast so and wasn't planned for the for the podcast and the guys for the discussion but for those that are listening with this is on 13th of march day being a specifically important factor because it's a fairly fast moving process but um as well i hope people know by this date the the silicon valley bank has had uh, some significant issues and further banks as well. Signature, I think, came across this morning and there was another one a couple of weeks ago. So two kind of crypto level, which we can kind of understand with the fall of FTX, but certainly Silicon Valley Bank, heavily venture capital-based. Some private equity firms are involved in uh, in that space, but a lot of tech and yeah. things, tech investments. So yeah. what's your kind of takes on things, Sal? What's your kind of insight here as well? Obviously, based on the situation, but also previous Goldman as well. I think that you start to see high rates pull the froth out of the market. There was a lot of excesses in crypto and in technology for certain. That 13 years of zero interest rate policy has sort of coerced people into taking risks they should not have. And that comes in the form of, well, you know, if rates are at zero today, a dollar today is worth the same is a dollar 20 years from now so people are thinking well what do i need to do how do i how am i going to be able to take advantage of the circumstance so that's where you started to see the advent of like people doing venture and the silicon valley has a probably one of the most herd mentalities of any animal that you've ever come across and they all have the same group think and they all follow the same leaders which is fine and it's like that in most industries but the problem is with tech in my experience and the reason why we didn't go near it is because a lot of these companies in tech, and tech is a lower barrier to entry industry. Think about it. Any kid can set up an app or something like that. It's, you don't need a Nobel Prize winner like we do on the board or as a CEO for a matter for one of our companies, like what we had with Acuity Health. And it becomes very interesting to see like, okay, it, there's just been so much money going into this, no revenue, but a lot of investor money coming into later rounds. And then they get into like non-revenue based loans. And then you have the bank giving loans or relational banking. That to me, I think is great, but I think the underwriting could have been much better with that. And they, there weren't really any risk controls there. And I can tell you, moving to Miami, Silicon Valley Bank had a huge presence down here. But none of the companies I've met down here is anything that I would invest into yet because most of them are first time founders and they're sort of scrambling and a lot of pretty pitch decks, but not a lot of depth, if that makes sense, Alex. And, you know, these companies are saying, well, we got a loan from Silicon. I'm like, hey. You know, it's kind of scary, but I think, unfortunately, I think, fortunately, the government is going to step in and they're going to have to do something about this because it could ruin the entire venture capital, you know, industry for the next 10 years. It could wipe out an entire generation of entrepreneurs. And that's not something that this country can really afford to do right now. I think that you're going to start to see some reforms, but, you know, I think there'll be like a lot of jawboning. I think there'll be a lot of committees. Nothing will really change. We can rates go back down to zero again. It's going to be the same animal spirits. You can't help but not invest money. You're just sitting there. You're seeing inflation go up. And this is for anyone with a balance sheet, especially very wealthy people or professional investors. You're making 0.001% off of it, right? Less than 1% for many years. You are forced to take risk. And a lot of people were forced to take risk. And what they didn't expect to see were interest rates to go up 500 basis points in the past seven months. And that's going to have many, it's going to leave a path of destruction in many things. Real estate, one of them, of course, but also the lower barrier to entry that are dependent upon this types of what we call venture debt are going to be the ones that are harmed the most. What's your take on what you think is going to happen? So there's a lot of portfolio companies out there that are huge at risk. And, you know, there's a lot of big venture firms, I'm sure will survive, particularly on those, but... With regards to the portfolio companies and on the, and the investments of these venture firms, are we going to see a lot of 
you know, trash get thrown out and the cream of the crop remain. Obviously, I'm sure there'll be. Yeah, there you know, is. There's going to be a lot of. That. People are going to be wiped out. And that's just the way it is. People are, this is not just going to be something as far as an issue as it relates to a canary in the coal mine. It's going to be more of like a signal of, okay, we should probably trim the herd right now. What are the best of the best? And just keep working from there. Because let's face it, not everything's going to go public. It's very prohibitive to get a company to go public today. And, the, you know, there's many companies in Silicon Valley that are trying to compete with one another to be the next Airbnb or this. And I get these pitch decks all the time. None of them make sense. However, you know, ideas do get funded sometimes, not necessarily by us or the smartest investors. But I do think that there is going to be a culling, of course. And we saw this when I was working at Goldman during 2001. I saw that AOL was buying Time Warner on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And I came to the, <laughs> I came to the conclusion, Alex, that, you know, this could be the end of funny money. You know, this could be the end of it. And sure enough, it was in March 2001, right? This is going back 22 years. Jeez, I mean, that's a long time ago. As I'm looking at this right now, I think it was the beginning of March when that article came out. You're seeing the same thing happen. It's just the Darwinization of the industry as it relates to higher interest rates. People who don't hedge against higher interest rates or don't think about higher interest rates or thinking that they can exit a company before the interest rates happen should probably not play fire competing with the Federal Reserve. They're the ones that you know make and you know sort of control the capital markets, if you will, today. You think, and if we see ventures, the kind of I've always had it described as the one in ten. 10 of them, you know, will be, they'll invest in 10 companies. One of them will be, you know, the one that covers everything else. There'll be two that goes evens. Do you think we'll see a reduction, like the private equity industry, we saw something like that, you know, there'd be private equity would be absolutely chastised, but do you see a reduction in that now? Do we see a bit of a change from that perspective? Uh, You will. I think so. I mean, higher interest rates take no prisoners. In private equity, that means how much of a, how much money are they going to be able to pull out of cash, you know, tax-free? from refinancing those industries. Typically what those private equity companies do is that they sort of strip mine all the equity out of those portfolio companies and give them to themselves and their investors as dividends. But if the cost of capital goes up, it sort of means that the valuation of the company comes down and there's not a lot of capital there left. I think you're going to start to see, you know, I don't see how it can happen. I think you're going to see probably it's going to be one in 20. Although that's not for us, but for most funds out there, you're going to see that, but it depends on what they've also invested into as well. Not everything in technology is going to be that vibrant. Not everything in Web3 is very popular today. People in crypto are, you know, they're not really, you know, they're, some people were evangelical about it and some people aren't anymore. Some people just turned around. I do believe that there's a time for it, but you have to understand it's the lowest common denominator investor that always gets fleeced, especially with crypto. So it depends on what's in there. It's sort of the equivalent of asking me how much it's about in grocery's way. You really don't know what it is until you know what's in it. But I can tell you, looking at a lot of portfolios and hearing people speak, they're still like, it, you know, it's sort of like they're still talking to me like a deer in headlights about Web3, crypto, blockchain. Nobody's investing in them. They're trying to develop sort of the noise and the, and the attention around it. However, it's not getting that attention today. And I think you're going to see these lower barrier to entry investments, especially those in first time founders who have never navigated through anything like this before, who don't have the relationships to call on a bank to be able to get a new bank account or whatever. They're the ones who are ultimately going to get hurt. And it's going to probably stymie some investors, smaller retail mom and pop investors for years who invested into these companies because they thought that zero interest rates were going to be around and they didn't have to really worry too much about anything. They didn't know what they didn't know. And there's always, and if it was so easy, I mean, everybody would be doing it. And I know that People look at Shark Tank today, which is, you know, the American show here. I'm sure you have one there. And it looked easy for years until Friday. 
Interesting, interesting. And I think it's going to be an ever-evolving process and uh, we're going to see a lot of, I mean, you know, this should be modern calls, as you mentioned, I think, up and coming in the next uh, 15, 20 minutes. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. So we're, we're going to see what's going to, what's going to come. What do you think, talk a little bit about where do we see the future then? Where do you see this kind of going and what do you see, you know, the fallout of this being and then how do we kind of move forward? Is it just that quality investing Investing a good company, stop throwing money at everything from a VC tech perspective. Is that kind of where we just kind of see everything go a little bit yeah. more normal? Yeah, I mean, the VC companies, I mean, they, you know, they've been doing this for years and they really made their money like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, right? Like Bessemer Ventures, all these people. And everybody's had, they've been able to attract a lot of attention because the stock market kept going up. There was a booming IPO market at one time. There were a lot of these companies that were going public and people really started to think, Either one of two things, they're smarter than they actually were, or trees were growing to the sky. And at some point, things come to an end. And when you start to see interest rates go up, that's where you're going to have a lot of problems because that's going to, that's the first thing that's going to do, especially in American housing and even housing in the UK, is that how, you know, higher interest rates, housing is always going to be the sacrificial lamb. The next stuff after that and the next chain are going to be these low barrier to entry businesses that everybody's getting into that aren't running well. They're dependent upon debt to make payrolls. They're going to die and you're going to see, you know, I think private capital come in and do, you know, sort of save the day on it. And a lot of the families that I'm working with right now, they're buying a lot of these assets, you know, a discount quality assets at a discount because they have the cash to do that. And I think it's going to be the private, you know, the world I hang out with, with the family offices and those, the 0.001%, they're the ones who are going to strategically go in and hopefully underpin a lot of these companies that are there right now. And there's always going to be some sort of an innovation. Hedge funds are going in. This is during 2008 when nobody could bank. You know, the hedge funds were setting up their own banks. There's always going to be innovation and people are always going to be able to do things. It's just a matter of time and it's going to be the private capital going into it. And if you have any access or any lead into the private capital markets, then you're going to have a much better time seeing this through. And that's why we look at companies that have a lot of, their CEOs have had a lot of access because they've been definitely navigated through these circumstances before and they have the contacts and network the relationships and the reputation to do so i'm sick of uh that's well that's now expensive um and cash is uh cash is still king as has been for may said by many do you see any kind of like so the ventures taking a pretty bet here and yeah it's classic silicon valley even renowned for you know coming out with you know the facebooks and, and the ubers and everything else to bring it out do you see much of this having huge effect other than obviously the debt being expensive from a private equity perspective when it's obviously a leveraged type world? But do you see anything kind of a similar vein, maybe not triggered by SBB, but by other potential markets that will hit the private equity world, but obviously more developed, established type investments, and but still leveraged by debt? I, you know, I think you're going to start to see, I mean, it's the only thing I can think of, and it's with the private market, it's with the public market, is that more expensive debt means maybe less share buybacks. Remember, there was a lot of reason to issue shares. If you look at it, Apple probably has a credit rating that should be better than the United States of America, just based off of <laughs> just based off of their balance sheet and the money that they have and everything. But I also think that you know they've been a beneficiary too. They're not dumb. Where you know they've been you know paying very low interest rates to be able to buy back their shares, and I think the buybacks will stop too as well, or at least slow down to a trickle. Because it'll cost more money to buy those shares back. So it's going to be a function of where rates go and how that looks as it relates to if the balance sheets are stretched enough where they can't 
take anymore and they can't issue anymore buyback. They can't do any more buybacks. They can't do anything that they want to do because the cost of capital, especially for debt has gone up. And I also think that you're going to start to see private privately held. You're seeing this now. I think I wouldn't be surprised if Apple got into the credit business, you know, I went or the, you know, the consumer banking business. I really, I, but that's just, you know, a very far, you know, a very extreme example of it, but it's how you see the public and private markets come together. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're immune to higher interest rates. They are. It's just a function of how tapped out their consumers are or their investors. And looking at how people can protect themselves moving forward, if we look at the investing world, you know, you've written that book about how the top, you know, 0.001% invest. What's some of your advice for somebody that's in the investing world that's whether private equity, venture capital, how do they make better quality investments? Is it they need better options? They need more uh, deal flow coming through? Is the quality with regards to that due diligence phase? What would you I'll what tell you what it comes down to? It comes down to this. A lot of people who have the worst investments have the worst network, and they're the ones who have never networked. If you have a bunch of people, for example, who are a bunch of people in a medical profession, they don't know anything better than anyone else other than thinking that one person's smarter than the other. That's a problem. And so I always tell people to make sure that they spend a disproportionate amount of their time networking. I mean, I'm not afraid to tell you that over the years past, we've spent probably over $100,000 a year just going to conferences, membership, and things like that in order to get the deal flow that comes in. If you're relying on your brother-in-law who's got a great idea because he ran it off of a Reddit chat room, you're not going to have, there's not going to be a lot there. And I'll also tell you that the most widely disseminated investments are usually the worst ones that you ever want to get into. I mean, crypto, it's an extreme circumstance of this, but if remember, everybody was coming out with these coins and there were ICOs at that point. If somebody is direct messaging you on your Instagram about it, how good of a, and you don't know this person, how good of an investment can it be? But unfortunately, a lot of people have got the greed genes and we all express it differently. Every human has the greed gene and, you know, they wound up gambling and losing. And I think really we have to look at it. If you're doing anything in venture or anything public, you have to look at the CEO you have to have a hard look and not even look at the idea. And if you do this on Shark Tank, it's fun. Do these people really deserve to be a custodian of your money? Do they know what they're doing? Do, can they look at themselves in the face every morning and handle adversity? And if your gut says no, ask your spouse. Or if your gut says yes, then ask your spouse and see if you can come or someone you trust, really. And then that'll save you a lot of problems because a lot of people were investing into ideas and pretty pitch books, but there was no one there who had the experience really to put it together or the grit or the determination to do so. And how did you mention, obviously, spent a lot of money on building that network. What's some of the actions that you took to build your network and build your contacts? Well, what, what I do is I'm always out there. I make it, there's two things that I, I put a priority on in my day, and that is communicating with investors or anybody, even you for that matter, right on a podcast. But I always spend, we send a lot of emails out to people because our family office, one of the hallmarks or values, interactivity. We want people to know everything that's going on. But as soon as I meet someone, I don't take anything for granted, right? I meet someone, these are high network, high net worth people. These are high people who are of high, you know, of higher status. I want to immediately know them and build a relationship with them. And, you know, after this call, I have a bunch of business partners that I met at a luncheon over here with some people from Palm Beach who I have to follow up with. And that really, you have to, I think a lot of people sort of don't sort of foster those relationships. And if you want to be successful in anything private, because this is the buy side and this is the top of the financial pyramid, right? The sell side is like your, you know, your brother-in-law here who failed out of college, you know, selling mutual funds. So up here is where the smart people are, Gar Carlisle, 
Goldman Sachs, all these guys at the top, is it's a relational business. And if you're not building relations with people, you're not going to go far because people want to build a relationship with you first before they even give you their money or allow you into their opportunities. And so I think if you were to look at the bottom line here is treat your net worth like your net worth or what you have in your bank account. To me, every time I have someone in my iPhone who I know is good, I have it listed out or even in my contacts and HubSpot, I'm able to see, okay, I made a meaningful relationship with this person. They're opening the emails all the time. I'm continuing to build the relationship. And a lot of people don't do that. They're like, hey, I met you. Nice. I mean, before I even met you, I just sent you an audible copy of my book, right? So, I mean, this is like the relationship building that people, you know, they get very lazy about and they just take it for granted. And then they wonder why they haven't gotten anywhere in life and they've lost a lot of money is because they never bothered to build the relationships or network outside of their core competencies, whether that's, you know, medicine or law or whatever it is. So definitely great. It's a great advice. What do you love about private equity, venture capital, and what do you dislike about it? I love that you're dealing with the smartest people in the industry. And, you know, you're the check writer, you're the one in charge. And it is, as I said before, it's the top of the financial services pyramid, being in investment banking, buy side, private equity, all of that. What I don't like about it is that you, every time you do a deal, your name's on it. And so even though we've had no failures, you know, there's nights where you go to bed gritting your teeth or, you know, you're not sure what's happening, but you're texting your CEOs to make sure if they have any exposure to like this bank blowing up or anything else like that. So it, nothing ever goes right. And when you invest, you have to make sure that you need to understand that you have to be patient when it goes through this. And I've seen a lot of families too, put their ego in the way because they might've made $175,000 selling, I don't know thing like, you know, some sort of technology company. And then they think that they know everything about real estate. Don't always get, you know, always try to educate yourself and surround yourself with people who are best in class to be able to do that. And that's where you're going to get the success. But I like it because you're working with very smart people. Um, I don't like it because it's, it's, you know, it's a long tail before you get paid. When you get paid, it's a lot, but you also know that you're going to be sometimes laying in a pool of your own sweat with some of these opportunities, especially if you go through a pandemic again, or, you know, another bank failure or whatever will happen tomorrow. That's it. And regards to educational resources, what would you recommend others check out? What do you read, listen, watch? You know, I'm cynical at best, paranoid at worst, and I call myself a pessimist surrounded by risk. But that only gets you so far in life. I like reading. A lot of people like I do, we, you know, we communicate with each other, and there's like these WhatsApp messages and things that we work with. However, I like reading the fringe media or the alternative media, Zero Hedge, I like. Bloomberg is great, you know, in the morning at the gym if I'm not listening to a podcast. And I really, you know, I try to stay away from the mainstream financial media because they're all mostly geared towards retail investors with the same, you know, advice that really, you know, works for, you know, the middle class. It doesn't work for people like us. And so what I'm looking for, what are the big, what are the big things moving right now in the markets? Who are the big players? What are they doing? Where are they putting their money and how can I play with them? Makes sense. In complete agreement with the mainstream media, absolutely pointless yeah. to uh, to watch and listen to any of that. So, so if anybody wants to reach out, post this conversation. How best do they they get in touch with you, please? Yeah, they can. First of all, they can buy my book if they want, which is great. They can go to investinglegacy.com forward slash book, or they can email me at sal at investinglegacy.com. Investinglegacy.com. Sal at investinglegacy.com. And that's how you get in touch with me. And if you want, I can put you on our family office's email distribution and onboard people so they can see what we do behind the scenes um, as it relates to working with these families and these highfalutin investments, high-profile statement class assets. That's it. We'll put all that in the, in the show notes. So, so thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Alex, 
And, thanks uh, so much. And going through everything. So thank you very much for that. And as always, thank you those for joining us and listening in today. If you ever need support with private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to us at Royal Selection. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.